Good morning, SBC family. Please find your seat. It is nice to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. And if I haven't introduced myself, my name is Brad. I'm one of the staff pastors here. I oversee uh, worship and outreach in our community and have the opportunity to share the word of truth with you this morning. If you need a Bible this morning, please raise your hand. Uh, we will be in Mark chapter 14, um, and one of our ushers and greeters will put one in your hand. If you need a Bible, just put your hand up. While uh, that is happening, a couple announcements for you. Uh, Fundamentals of the Faith was supposed to be kicking off here in a couple weeks. We are actually going to postpone that until spring. So uh, make sure if you are planning on taking that class to keep your ear to the ground for a new start date and an opportunity for you to uh, dive in and see what some of those uh, ground floor doctrine and theology uh, that we stand upon um, and able to teach upon uh, one of those kind of classes. So uh, we are going to postpone that until probably around April. So be mindful of that. Secondly, uh, we have a new baby coming into our midst here soon. Yeah, we celebrate kiddos life. Uh, Lacey and Wesley Colburn, um, if you didn't know, uh, if you are a couple here and um, your first baby that you have here, uh, we want to bless you with a baby shower. And so um, Monday, January 23rd, uh, 2023, Ray Hall, 6 p.m. Please come bless this family. Come hang out, have a bite to eat, pray for them, buy them a gift. Um, again, we are lifting up families and life. Uh, very exciting. Um, with that said, those are the two announcements for today. Quick and easy. Will you stand with me? Let's uh, read God's word this morning. Let's dive in and see what God has for us today. Mark chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse 51 and read a few verses here. Starting in 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in, in, the, in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked him, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. Um, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we always want to honor your precious word. For you tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the good news 
And Lord, you promise also that your words do not return void. And we just pray, Lord, as we um, unpack this narrative this morning, Lord, that you'll teach us something new. Teach us afresh. Spirit, bring the remembrance of Scripture. Lord, may we walk in your ways. Teach us, mold us in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. As we uh, unpack this a little bit this morning, we're going to take a little bit of an unconventional approach on a Sunday morning. Typically, we teach exegetically, verse by verse, but this morning we're actually going to do somewhat of a character study. And as we read here, there's going to be many characters that are in here, but I'm going to label this message the good, the bad, and the ugly. All you Clint Eastwood fans are like, yes, I've been waiting for this message forever. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But before we do, I would like you to maybe go back in your memory. Think of somebody that meant a lot to you, that um, maybe had good character. Maybe uh, you saw that they were a loving father or they were a godly man or woman. Um, Think of some of their characteristics that come to mind. Maybe they were humble. Maybe they were giving. Maybe they were loving. Maybe one of your mentors uh, took you under their wing and, and taught you the good news of the gospel. On the contrary, though, I would like you to also look and think about somebody that has made a poor decision that you saw, that you learned from. You're like, I'm definitely not ever, ever going to do that. You got that person in your mind? I have those people in in my life, too. And this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the individuals in this passage, and we're going to glean. We're going to take away, take the fruit, eat it up, and be like, okay, this is what I'm going to mimic. This is what I'm going to um, grab onto, how I'm going to take hold of. These are some of the things that I'm never going to do, that I'm going to see that some of these guys fell flat on their face and ultimately were the face of ugliness. To begin, we're going to kind of work our way backwards. We're going to start with the ugly. And there's four individuals in this passage that I want to classify in the ugly category. First and foremost, they are the high priests, the scribes and elders, the Pharisees, and the false accusers. The high priests and the Pharisees and the elders are kind of in in the first camp here. These men of power have been plotting, they've been devising, they've strategized, they found every effort that they could throughout the Gospels to bring the ministry of Jesus down. In fact, Jesus describes them as sons of Satan, snakes, whitewashed tombs. They were absolutely good for nothing, really. They may have looked good on the outside, but their hearts were far from the Lord. In addition to this, we find with this first trial, Jesus actually went through six trials. This is the first trial that is brought before a man named Annas. He was a high priest at the time, and much like our presidents of the day, you are always a high priest until you basically die or you retire, but you still hold that that office. And Annas, they're brought to his house, and the trial starts here, and And he basically had this power over the temple at the time. And if you didn't know, Annas had five sons, and they were in charge of all the money changers and the basically exchanging of of funds within the temple. And if you remember the story that Jesus comes in the temple, and what does he do? 
overthrows the tables and says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Think of the family business if somebody comes in and stirs the pot like that. In addition, Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, and he is the reigning high priest at the time. So we have these, these multiple people that are in it for, in it to win it. In it, in it for the money, in it for greed, and for the love of money. And we find that, that this is the motivation really behind what they have done to Jesus. Listen to Paul as he tells Timothy, and um, I didn't have it written down here. Is it First Timothy or Second Timothy that I wrote in there for you? Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 6, um, verse 10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. I believe it was these guys. I believe this is one of their many sins that they had within their heart was the the sin of greed, the sin of money, the sin of power, the sin of pride. This is one of those things that we want to say, yeah, I do not want to mimic that. The Bible uses many words that we're going to kind of describe this morning, but a few of those is like to imitate, to conduct yourself, to be an example, let your light shine, to show yourselves approved, to be a model. From each of these people, we want to kind of take some of these things and be like, okay, I'm going to stuff that in my back pocket. I'm going to think about that. I want to mimic that. I don't want to mimic that. And this is one of those things we don't want to mimic, the greed, the love of money. So why were these guys so bad, though? So we see that there was many interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees particularly, but we have to come back to the root of why they were bad. And I believe Paul kind of alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and this is talking specifically to the world in general. We are a redeemed people. We are now alive. We are no longer under the law but under grace. Um, We are new creatures in him. But before Christ died, everybody pretty much was lost. They they, They weren't redeemed yet. There was faith still, so we find the hall of faith of Abraham that people were saved by faith. But they didn't become alive really until the day of Pentecost, spiritually. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. In addition to this, 1 Corinthians, he tells the Corinth church in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These men were spiritually dead. They didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand the purposes of God and how he had orchestrated the Messiah to come and to basically redeem mankind. We've talked about this over and over again. The Jewish people were looking for the reigning Messiah, not the servant. Not the servant, as we see here, um, the, how did we describe this? follow the servant. Jesus is the servant. They they weren't expecting that. 
but they were expecting the, the reigning and ruling leader. And because of this, and because of their, their pride and their blindness, they decide to try Jesus, to commit perjury, to bring in the middle of the night um, a trial that shouldn't have taken place ever. But there was, there was laws that, that the Jewish people had that you couldn't have a, a trial overnight. It shouldn't be over the Passover. I mean, there was multiple layers to this wickedness. But these weren't the only guys. So as we read, there were these, these, um, these men that would come that were false accusers. They were liars. They were coming saying, well, Jesus said this. Jesus did this. But they couldn't put two words together to make, make their stories right. There were no two or three witnesses that could collaborate together to come up with a story that was the same. What's crazy is, though, is that the law said that if a false if somebody comes with a false accusation and it was wrong, they were to be put to death. So these guys, they either had some real boldness or they were paid off. And I believe it was the second, that, that the, the Pharisees and the high priests you know, slipped a 20 in their pocket and said, hey, come and accuse this guy. Make sure you say this. Of course, it must have not been very good money or where guys were not very smart to be able to come and come up with a good story that, that held truth. So this is, these are the number four. So we had the Pharisees, we have um, the elders, we have the high priest, and the fourth ugly guy is the false accusers. These are the guys that wanted the 15 minutes of fame. These are the guys that were willing to lie and twist the truth. But I believe all these guys fall into um, Proverbs chapter 6. If you want, you can turn with me there. Proverbs chapter 6, and there's six things that the Lord says that are detestable to him, that he hates. In fact, seven are detestable. And this is why they, I believe these guys fall in the ugly camp. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. Sorry, I'll turn there too. Sixteen through nineteen, it says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him: haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one whose sorrows discord among brothers. Let me read in a different translation here that kind of expounds this a little bit more. This is out of the NIV. It says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, so being puffed up with pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devise wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Sound familiar to these guys? I think they hit upon all seven of them. They were either lying, they were stirring up um, lies within the community, they're about to shed innocent blood, they of course have lying tongues, but more importantly, they're coming and arriving and saying basically that 
I know what's right. Look at me. So this is just the first group. Again, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's, let's talk about the bad for a moment. The bad group, as we read through, um, there was a mob, a cohort. There were soldiers. Um, there were people that came to arrest Jesus. And I put these guys in the bad group because though they may have just been coming following orders, they commit the sin of omission. What does that mean? Listen to what James says. James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. These guys are without excuse. We're without excuse when it comes to that kind of sin. Uh, I know I should do that. I'm going to go the other way. Uh, I probably shouldn't arrest this guy. All he's been doing is healing people. Yeah, I'll just follow orders. So I put them in that category for that reason. Secondly, the disciples. Again, this is a narrative a little bit different than we're normally thinking about, but we're character studying here a little bit. Disciples, there were 12 of them. We know Judas has gone off, sold for 30 pieces of silver. The rest of the 11 were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of them were kind of on the outer skirts. And three of them were um, taken into kind of a deeper place, right? Peter, James, and John. The reason I placed them in the camp was because all 11 of these, in fact, all 12, were not men of their word. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37 says. Again, I have heard that it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that, this comes from evil. Now, 12, 12 hours probably pre, uh, prior to the Garden of Gethsemane, we find the Passover feast. They were there. Jesus explained that his death was coming. And these disciples said what? I will not forsake you. I will die for you, Jesus. I, I will be there until the end. Lo and behold, when push came to shove, they all fled. Except for Peter. We find a Peter in the mix. You know, he gets thrown under the bus sometimes, but I want to commend him a little bit for maybe being brave. There's some dispute about how many people came to arrest Jesus. That doesn't matter. Let's say there was 50. Because some are like, well, 600 was too much. 200 was too much. Let's say there was 50. And there's 11 of them. Peter breaks out his little butter knife, fillets some dude's ear. I'm pretty sure he wasn't going for the ear. He probably was going for the headshot, but he's a fisherman. A for effort, F for not a well-thought-out plan. I believe he was trying to prove something, though. He was trying to say, you know what, Jesus, do you remember? Do you not remember 
I told you I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to fight for you. But Peter didn't realize that he was fighting with the wrong weapons. Peter didn't realize that Jesus wasn't out of control. Peter didn't realize that at one word, just as he spoke to this, this cohort or legion, that they fell at the very breath of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul again speaking to the Corinth church, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Does that mean that you and I in our own strength have the power? Absolutely not. For in fact, Zechariah 4, 6 talks to this and says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit that resides in our heart, the stamp of approval that you are saved. But again, the war is not won by sword. In fact, I, I, I beg to say, the war is done on your knees in prayer. The war is done by yielding to the Spirit, by asking God to lead you and guide you and give you strength. I think of... Uh, Joshua and Caleb as they entered the, the promised land and God encouraged him and said be strong be very courageous for the Lord God is with you wherever you go it is the Lord it is his strength may we trust in him okay so we talked about the bad and the ugly Let's kind of move into the good. And mind you, Jesus says, you call me good, but who is good? There's no one that's good. But we're, we're taking this from the standpoint of, of looking at the screen of somebody's life again. You're taking some of the fruit, okay? So as we look at this, there's a couple guys, and I was talking with Jesse. I was like, thanks for giving me the naked guy. Did you guys catch that in verse 51? Let's read it again. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What? Why is this in the Bible? Pretty funny. Some commentators, some theologians believe that this really is Mark, the person that, that, that penned this. This is his little stamp to say, I was there. I was there, and I was naked. One commentator I was reading this week kind of unpacks this story a little bit. And, and again, like, it's, it's not recorded on why he's there, just in a cloth. But if it was Mark, if we read in the book of Acts, we find that the early church met in Mark's house, his mom's house. They met in the upper room, possibly, for Passover. Well, think of this, young Mark. Maybe he's in his teens, early 20s. It's a hot night, so he's sleeping without any clothes. And the disciples and Jesus have left. 
they've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of a sudden, Judas and the cohort come knocking on the door. Where's Jesus? Where'd he go? All of a sudden, Mark hops from his bed, doesn't have time to put clothes on. Mind you, this is speculation, but I thought it was a pretty good story. Doesn't have time to put clothes on, jumps out the window, climbs down the vine with nothing but the sheet, runs to the garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to go tell Jesus they're coming. They're coming. He shows up. Cohort beats him there. They try to grab him to arrest him. Take his sheet. He runs off in the woods naked. End of story. I liked it. I, I was like, that could very well have happened. Whether that did happen or didn't happen, like again, I can't put words into God's mouth, into the word. What I want you to take away from this man is his enthusiasm for Jesus. He's there. Whether he's there for the good, the bad, or the ugly, he's excited about being there. He wants to be around the Lord. He wants to be around the action. Paul, one of the heroes of the faith that has written much of the New Testament, encourages you and me through Romans chapter 12, verse 11, and says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. I want to be that guy. I don't care what people think. I'm going to be with Jesus. I want to serve him. I want to be with him. As we talk about the good here, Peter I've already thrown under the bus, but let's pull him out of the bus and dust off his britches and let's be encouraged through him a little bit. I believe Peter really loved the Lord. I believe he would do anything for him. Though he put his foot in his mouth often, I believe he, he really did. And we find that account, you know, as Jesus is walking with him. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times, right? Peter's testimony of the gospel was recorded furthermore in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, and says that he, his testimony was a pillar to the faith. Day of Pentecost, think about it. He's standing on the balcony, standing on his little soapbox, preaches the gospel. Three to 5,000 people get saved that day. Redemption, God's grace, sanctification. I love to see from beginning to end the roughness of Peter, fishing in a boat, walking on water. Then we see the, the kind of the nasty part of him denying Christ. We see him walking with Christ. And then we, we see that that process, that process is you and me. That process is sanctification. That process is being able to see God's grace is bigger than our problems and our issues and more importantly, our sin. God is bigger. Yes, God can use our failure to bring about his purpose. More importantly, God will use your failure to draw you unto him. The Holy Spirit that resides in your heart will convict you of sin, will continually point you back to repentance, point you back to the Savior that says you are forgiven. 
Walk in the Spirit. Walk in boldness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made in weakness, made perfect in weakness. Each of these men, I put the disciples in a good camp, and, but prior we were saying that they were in the bad camp because they weren't men of their word. But if you read church history, if you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, each of them, including John, had either their fair share of abuse, persecution, or being put to death. I would say they came round about and were men of their word. Glean that. Be men and women of your word. I think, what does Proverbs say? Uh, Die to your hurt. I think that's the phrase. May your yes be yes and your no be no. A.W. Tozer, he points it this way and says, to be right with God is often to be in trouble with men. We're coming round about in America. Persecution will come. It's a promise. Are you ready, though? Are you ready to stand upon the word of God, the word of truth, to know it, to battle with this sword, not with guns and swords and whatever not, with this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. Now each of these guys, of course, had consequences. They had issues, as I I just stated. But for us, as we are here and we're trying to take some of these things and put it in our pocket and be encouraged to walk the Christian life, to be holy for he is holy. You be encouraged through these three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. I'm going to kind of gunshot these out to you. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators. Be what? Imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Well, Brad, what are you talking about? Like, do I need to do all these works to show myself approved or to be saved? No. We do not believe in works-based theology. What do you mean by that? You're not saved by your works. You can't help 20 grandmas across the street and expect that that's going to make you to heaven. Okay? So salvation plus faith equals works. It's the fruit of salvation. If you are not producing fruit, I would beg to say you either need to repent or maybe, just maybe, you might not be saved. Why do I say this? James tells us that faith without works is dead. A tree that does not produce fruit has nothing but to be thrown into the fire. Produce fruit. 
We do that again by the spirit of the Lord that lives within you. Let him challenge you. He said, who is good? Jesus ultimately is the only answer. We talked about the naked man and the disciples, that they had some good traits, but they were just should or they should only be reflecting who Jesus is and what he has done. And we're going to look at that a little bit here with Jesus. Um, as we turn to uh, verse 61, we're going to pick up here in a minute. Verse 60, excuse me. But there are three things that in my study I felt stuck out that I wanted to duplicate in my life. And I pray that they duplicate in your life also that Jesus represented here. One, three C's. You can leave here with three C's. To be courageous. Everybody say courageous. Secondly, confident. Say confident. Lastly, calm. Calm. In a calm voice. Three C's. Courageous, confident, and calm. Why do I say courageous? Jesus knows that at this moment, the high priest has, has accused him of, of something really that he, he is. He's asking, are you really the Messiah? Are you God? And let's read this again. Um, excuse me, verse 60 through 62. And the high priest stood up in the mist and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So the high priest he stumbles upon himself again, indicting Jesus already. So he's already accusing him. That was against the law. Like you had to have two or three witnesses that came with testimony. But Jesus then, first and foremost, doesn't say anything. He says nothing. And this led to fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Old Testament and the New Testament, again, always dovetail. They always come together. And sometimes you will see that written in the Gospels to fulfill prophecy. Look it up. Find out what that prophecy was. That was one. So he was courageous in the beginning here because he... He states first and foremost, I am. This rings throughout all of John. We've done a, Pastor Jesse did a study on this a few years ago, but um, the seven I am statements out of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the gate. I am the vine. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, so on and so forth. I am. This word in the Greek is ego eni. It means to be that I have been, I exist, to happen, to be present. This not only rings true in John, but this points all the way back to the burning bush. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid was The Ten Commandments. My parents wouldn't let me watch anything else. That's all I watched. Charlton Heston, 
But I, it's just something I always remember. Like he's sitting there in front of the bush and whoever's voice it was, it was like deep. Who's going to send me? I am that I am. I am the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of you and me. He's telling this high priest, though I am in, on trial right now by you, I am. I'm exactly who you're telling me or who you're asking me. I am. Jesus is the center of it all. I was listening to a sermon last night from John Piper and there's a quote that kind of came to my attention. It says, Jesus is our only hope. Though he has bad representatives, including me at times, John was indicting himself, doesn't make Jesus defective. He is the focus. He is the one. He is the one that's in complete control in this whole scenario. And he goes on to even make it more hurting for this high priest. And it says, you, you high priest, will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That right hand of power, right hand man. The one that has the victory. The one that has the, the gusto to basically send you, Caiaphas, to hell. Then he goes on, but he says, the Son of Man. And I had to look, look this up a little bit because I've heard it through various times throughout um, the Old Testament. But particularly, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If you remember Daniel, Daniel had a long ministry. He sat under three different kings. And this is in the latter part of his ministry. Um, the first part was under Nebuchadnezzar. And there's great studying through there where it talked about, you know, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire and all these different things that would come on the scene. But Daniel turns in Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14, and he was an interpreter of dreams. And this particular dream came to him, and it says, speaking of God, I keep looking in the, vi the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Wow. Hundreds of years prior, the Lord has spoken through Daniel saying that the Son of Man is coming. And Jesus here is reiterating that and saying that you, high priest, though I sit under you now, I will be coming someday as judge and ruler and I will judge you and I'll be coming with the clouds, with all the armies of heaven and I will be victorious. What a great promise. He's coming on the clouds. He's coming back someday. 
Right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning, interceding, waiting patiently. Passage talks about, well, like, why hasn't God come back? He's waiting patiently for people to come unto repentance. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you as, as a, a Christian has felt distant from the Lord. It's time to turn back. He loves you. He says, return, child. Maybe you don't know him at all. Today's the day to bow the knee. Today's the day to make a proclamation of faith, to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. He indeed is the only one that is good. The kids next door sing the song. I'm, I'm hoping to be next door singing worship for the kids once a month here soon, so you won't see me once a month. But I've been learning this song. It's like a, almost like a techno song. And I'm like, I don't know if I could sing that. But it says this. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I leave you with this last quote from C.S. Lewis coming out of the Chronicles of Narnia. It says, when asking about Aslan, Lucy asks, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Beaver replies, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He is king. What a beautiful picture. Our God is reigning. Worship team, will you come up and friends, will you stand with me as we close in song? And I pray that you are encouraged to imitate some of these characteristics. Imitate the Lord. Be holy, for he is holy. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us examples of men and women in your word that we can imitate, replicate. But Jesus, we thank you more importantly that you came in the flesh, that you are ultimately the one that we look to, that you are our, our example. And even as that last quote says, Lord, you are good. We praise you now. We thank you that you go before us. In Jesus' name, amen.